Stalk Talks podcast brings you intelligent discussion of topical issues inspired by the international city of peace and justice. I think we all know what we need to do. Problems, they come like a costume. They fit you. Remove our inner critic and open our inner, you know, curiosity. You know, nothing speaks louder than money. Walk in, slam your fist on the table, so... (laughs) Yeah. Together, <laughs> something has to change. In today's episode of Stalk Talks Light, we take a deeper dive into the problem of urban planning and also the solutions that we find right here in the Netherlands. In our last episode, I spoke about low car cities, slow car cities, and transport networks that cater for everyone, including the very young and the very old. Today, I talk with Delft-based mobility expert Melissa Bruntlett. She is co-author of a book called Curbing Traffic, The Human Case for Fewer Cars in Our Lives. And we discuss how we might reimagine our relationship with the cities we live in and the transport networks we use. The Netherlands provides us with so many great examples of how we might do this. Melissa, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, we've spoken before... And your, your book is very timely, especially in, in wake of the pandemic. People are rethinking the way they work, the way they live, and of course, the kinds of transport they use. Mm-hmm. And as you know, we live in the Netherlands, and so bikes are, are very much part of life here. But perhaps we can just start by talking a little bit about low-car cities. Mm-hmm. And you, you actually say that that's not specifically about the bicycle per se, but it's simply the bicycle is a tool for the low car cities. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about that notion? Is that for you the key the key notion to our future problems of transport problems? How how do you see it? Yeah, so I think yeah, my experience, lived experience, but also in the research that uh, my husband and I have done for our two books now. Uh, the idea of the low car city is a place where we make more space for other ways of getting around. So cycling, especially in the Netherlands, is definitely a tool for transport. But when we create low car environments we create calmer spaces where people feel more comfortable not only to cycle but also for walking, for using other mobility devices What if they happen to be uh, with limited mobility or if we're talking about children or the elderly. So when we're talking about low car environments, it's, it's really about uh, not about taking people's opportunity to drive because there are people that have to drive or need to drive, mm-hmm. thinking logistics or people that are traveling further distances. You know, we're not saying get rid of all cars. We're removing those unnecessary trips and giving people more options for the shorter trips and the, often the more frequent trips we take uh, in a week or in a day. So, you know, going to grocery stores or doctor's appointments and, and so on and so forth. So when we create these low car environments where uh, the space just feels calmer, we allow people to have more choices in terms right. of their mobility. Yes, okay, I hear you. And I think that, well, that brings us on to also slow car cities because, as you mentioned, you said unnecessary trips, but I guess there might be a bit of discussion as to what is an unnecessary trip with a car. I know I come from a, a car culture myself, <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I see that is the first step to a low car city, perhaps a slow car city. Yeah, I think there's a definite link between the speed at which cars travel and then the, the subsequent number of mm. cars on the mm. street. Uh, So a lot of what we've seen over the last uh, 18 months or so have been these slow car streets or low car streets Mm. where speeds are reduced to around 30 kilometers an hour or less, uh, making them less 
um, attractive for people that are going longer distances because uh, instinctively and socio- like just in our minds, there's only a certain distance we're willing to travel in a car at a slow speed. So if you create those slow car environments, people will choose other options for the trips where they have to drive. Mm-hmm. And that quiets you know, neighborhoods, it quiets city centers. So oftentimes that's what we see in the Netherlands is the, the slow car centers and the slow car neighborhoods, which makes the arterials and, and the flow roads, the highways, that's the place where people can you know, really get some speed in their car and... And, and ultimately creates a safer environment in, Absolutely. in the neighborhoods. Absolutely. Yes, because if we start to see cars a little bit as the enemy, there does start to be this, this sense of competition mm-hmm. between, say, car and bike. I mean, I've seen it in other cities. When I lived in London, there was almost a war, a, a quiet war going on between the two. I, I believe that your co-author, your husband, Chris, has mentioned this notion of cooperation versus competition, um, but perhaps, as you say, encouraging people to make the choice on their own. Do you think that will make them more willing, perhaps, to change over if it was their decision? Absolutely. I think a lot of times, I mean, I come from a very uh, car-dominated place as well, mm-hmm. and part of the reason that we got involved in advocacy in the first place was this cars versus bike mentality, when really, in actual fact, I drive, mm-hmm. I used to drive, I don't have a car anymore, <laughs> but I used to drive, I also cycle, I also walk, I also take public transport, right. because the city that I was living in gave me those choices. Mm-hmm. And so when you're providing people with another choice, you, you create a low-car network where you're providing for walking and cycling and public transport to create an environment where there is more cooperation of space. I mean, we work in communications, a lot of it comes down to the rhetoric that is put out there in, in media outlets, but if we can move more towards an environment where people have more choice, and what we see, for example, in London is more people are in favor of these low-car environments, mm-hmm. they are in favor of more walking and cycling mm-hmm. space. But it's not necessarily reflected in the rhetoric. No. So we need to see that shift no. more. And as you say, perhaps the way it's done. Yeah, I always say you can't guilt people onto a bicycle. <laughs> you have to show them it's an attractive option, it's an easy option, and then they might choose that themselves. Good, good, good to remember. Good to remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the kinds of cities that we would like to create, ideally, in a minute. The Hague has the highest number of cars per square kilometre in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. So... We do, and I have to say, when I moved to The Hague from Amsterdam, I was a little bit surprised by what I felt was a slightly less um, considerate attitude of, of drivers to cyclists compared to Amsterdam, which mm-hmm. is obviously a much bigger, much busier city. I think The Hague is quite car-centric, for the Netherlands anyway, and this city of The Hague has realized this. They've acknowledged it and they've now started this initiative called Make Room for the, for the Bike. They're going to invest 65 million euros over the next five years into creating a more bike-friendly city. Mm-hmm. As somebody who is who is a mobility expert, what advice would you have for, for those people who are thinking about how should we do this? What, what do you think they should prioritize? I think the, the very first step in any city that's prioritizing uh, wa- uh, sorry, cycling is also to look at walking and, mm-hmm. and feel like look at how those networks work together. But that, that word that I just used, network, is really important. So rather than looking at things street by street, obviously there'll be different data for what streets are safer, where there's more cars, mm-hmm. where there's more conflicts between bikes and cars and how we can make that safer. Looking at the entire network and figuring out where people need, want to go, where they're coming from, and how do we make those trips easier by bike, right. and then planning the cycling infrastructure from that point. To support that. Exactly. Because when we, the Dutch uh, have approached cycling very network-based altogether for the most part. When cities just uh, put in one bike lane, for example, invest in one spot, and then move on to the next, 
it becomes a bike lane from nowhere to mm-hmm. nowhere. <laughs> and so when we do a network, we create the pathways that make it easier and uh, more convenient and flexible for people to get around by bike. Okay, so it really takes a lot of thought and planning, actually. It's it not does. just a case of, oh, let's just put more bike paths down and the problem yeah. will be solved. Exactly. There's a no. lot of thought that goes into it okay. and a lot of looking at traffic counts okay. and you know, also where automobile traffic is. And it's not bikes versus cars. It's a lot of how do we figure out how the two can share space and when they can't share space, mm. then we look at other options. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because I recently spoke with the Hague's bike mayor and he is, well, he's obviously very supportive of this notion. I, I know also he mentioned that part of this plan will be reducing the the speed limit across the city centre to 30 kilometres an hour, which mm-hmm. I think is seen as a sort of a minimum in terms of safety. Absolutely. But he also said he'd like to see that go down even to 15 or 20 kilometres an hour because he said then cars and bikes will actually be going at similar speed and mm-hmm. perhaps if they're going at the same speed, then you may be tempted to think, should I get onto my bicycle perhaps? Yeah, that is entirely uh, the thinking around that is these uh, slow streets or, or fietsrat uh, or bicycle streets mm. uh, that are throughout the Netherlands is create an environment where cars need to go slower because they're sharing the space with bicycles. Mm. In my opinion, in the city centers at the neighborhood level, 15 kilometers an hour is more than fast enough to get to where you need to go right. because you're probably just coming to visit, to stop and park. You're mm. not going through. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, it's very ambitious to to go there but i think that's where a lot of cities will start to go as more and more implement 30 kilometer zones taking that step further okay yeah where there's more people walking more people cycling of course more Um, children around exactly Mm. all right so you we spoke a little bit about this whole notion of the network and perhaps then that can bring us back to your book having looked at your book you've devoted uh, different chapters to different notions of the ideal city for perhaps for different groups of people one of the ones you you devote a chapter to is what you call the feminist city Mm -hmm. which uh, i thought oh that sounds very interesting given the that word has a lot of connotations but perhaps you can just tell us more about it because I do think it's a fascinating concept although not so new apparently yeah well the idea of the the feminist city at least uh, from my perspective and from the research that I've done is it's a city that takes into account the experience of women in the city Uh, so for a century (laughs) we've been planning cities largely around things like the commute to work or more economic based trips because uh, it's men have been the ones that have been doing the planning. And Mm. so they use their experiences and their needs to inform their decisions, Mm. which isn't per se wrong, but it means it's missing the other 50% of us who, yes, some of us are commuting to and from work, but we're also building in care trips, which are trips that are are done to do what is considered unpaid labor. So that's getting kids to school, taking care of family, doing groceries, running errands, all the things that... We are starting to share between uh, husbands and wives and partners more and more uh, lately, but is still predominantly falling on the shoulders of women. So when, we, when we're talking about a feminist city, it's designing for this perspective of women, which inherently means we need more women working in planning and leadership to bring their perspectives to the table, not necessarily to tell all the men they've been doing it wrong <laughs> for a century, no. but to have them think a little bit differently and use a different perspective. Okay, so broaden, broaden it. Exactly. And yes, and you mentioned these care trips and the commute tends to be a very linear trip normally, so there and back. Yes. But care trips are, by definition, more networked, if I can put it that yeah. way. They tend to be multi-directional, shorter, and perhaps linked, mm-hmm. even circular. 
Yeah, some of the, in some of the things that I've looked at, some of the research I've found, and some of the people I've talked to, when they start mapping out the trips that an average woman would take in a day, it almost looks like a spider web because it isn't that linear direction to and from work, but to school, then to work, then to you know all the other stops they make on the way, and so that network approach really facilitates that doing that by bicycle when you have that option uh, or by foot if it's a smaller catchment area but thinking about those trips and how do we connect them in a sustainable way so we don't make it so that women have to default to driving or people performing those care trips have to default to driving exactly from my understanding a feminist city takes into account a much wider number of stakeholders Mm -hmm. and if we're talking about care trips that will obviously then include perhaps children, but also perhaps the elderly. And then you also mentioned you devote a chapter to ageing cities. And of yeah. course, again, this is another group of people for whom perhaps city planners or town planners haven't really been thinking so much. What is the relationship between, say, age, planning a city for ageing um, folks and then, say, a feminist city approach? Well, they're, they're very strongly linked in terms of thinking about bases for uh, stopping and staying. So when we think about the average 65 to 75-year-old, your mobility is starting to get limited. Your, mm. your endurance slows down. The distance you can walk without feeling winded also slows down. Mm. So thinking even as simply as having a mid-block refuge where someone could sit on a bench, those little things mean a lot mm. to the average senior who might be walking with a cane or, mm-hmm. or you know, any other uh, means of getting around. Uh, and it also prov- provides these opportunities for social interaction, which, you know, for women, it's, you know, you meet another mom on the street and you yeah. coalesce with each other. For an elderly person, they thrive on familiarity, so they might not know everyone they're passing, but to have that connection to their community, it helps uh, maintain mental health and happiness for a longer period of time. And similarly with, with cycling, you know, I, my husband uh, has mentioned uh, bicycles here are often seen as like walking, a rolling walking yeah, stick. that's a great metaphor. Yeah, because we, we think about cycling as something that the able-bodied do. But for a lot of people, whether they're elderly or someone with limited mobility, the bicycle is almost uh, a mobility tool. And so, again, when we're thinking about bike networks, mm-hmm. you know, how are we getting people to where they want to go safely? Mm-hmm. How are we thinking about curb heights for rolling up onto a sidewalk if you need to park your bicycle? Mm-hmm. Mid-block refuges if you don't have the speed to get fully across the street. These are all seemingly little details, but can make a big impact in the experience of moving through a city. Absolutely. Melissa, we're running out of time, sadly, because this is a fascinating topic. I'd like to chat more. But perhaps we could finish by taking more of a bird's eye view. We're coming out of this pandemic. Many of us have experienced massive changes in our working lives, all aspects of our lives. But definitely it seems that the way we work is not going to be perhaps exactly as it was before. Mm -hmm. There will be more people working from home, at least more often. What do you foresee if you had to look into your crystal ball? (laughs) How will this affect, yes, mobility and mobility networks? I mean, are you positive perhaps about what what we could expect? I think we're at a little bit of a, an interesting point, and what's promising is a lot of cities are have not stopped thinking about how do we accommodate for people working from home and needing to mm. do various errands uh, by bicycle and walking. In my opinion, I think the next five to ten years, we'll see more and more cities putting more investment in 
connecting people for those shorter trips, like trips under a kilometer for walking or five kilometers for cycling. Because we're all working from home and so creating that uh, that space where we can cycle to the grocery store easily midday if we want to have a, a bit of a refuge or walking to the neighborhood park to have you know a half hour space away from our computers, I see this being more and more prevalent in cities. And I'm hoping the conversation within that starts to move a lot towards if we're all working from home, say 50% of the time or around that, that we're thinking about the amount of time we're spending on screens, what that has meant for our mental health over the last 18 months or so, and what we can do going forward to make sure that, you know, for the people that choose this option or people that don't have a choice and need to work from home, or if we fall into this scenario again, mm-hmm. we're doing the best we can to uh, allow for spaces to walk, for spaces to cycle safely and comfortably and to have those mental health checks basically yes. for ourselves. Very important, as yeah. we've learned from the pandemic. Exactly, we? yeah. Melissa Bruntlett, mobility advocate and co-author of Curbing Traffic, The Human Case for Fewer Cars in Our Lives. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's, it's been great uh, to, to chat.